0: and welcome, everyone. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is Take 15. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the fixed income market with my guest, Priscilla Hancock. Priscilla is Managing Director, Senior Fixed Income Strategist, and Head of the Fixed Income Insights Team at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to have her here with me today. Welcome, Priscilla. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So what are you telling your private clients uh, today when they ask, should we stay in fixed income as the Fed raises interest rates on the
1: path to rate normalization? So there's a many part answer to that question. You're actually right. It's the question we get asked all the time. Um, The first thing that I would say is, in some respects, my answer is no different today than it ever is, which is that high quality fixed income, you know, it plays a very important part in our clients' diversified portfolios high-quality fixed income, whether it's a municipal bond portfolio, if you're a taxpayer, whether it's a treasury bond portfolio or a diversified fixed income portfolio that might be uh, represented, for instance, by the Barclays Aggregate Index, those are the only asset classes that are negatively correlated to equities. Now, although we've seen some periods this year where the correlations have been wrong way, everything sells off at the same time, In general, that negative correlation is a really important part of portfolio construction. So the first thing I tell people is that hasn't changed, even in a rising rate environment. Second thing I tell people is that, in fact, the falling rate environment that they've experienced for the last 32 years was probably the worst thing that ever happened to them. And everybody says, how could that be? Well, it felt good because the value of your portfolio went up. But in fact, as the value of your portfolio went up, you had gains, which you might have paid taxes on, and you ended up with a portfolio that yields significantly less than you might need for your long-term needs. And in fact, rising rates, while there might be some short-term pain, actually have much more longer-term gains. And in fact, the math of high-quality fixed income suggests that as long as you hold a portfolio for its duration, it could be a ladder, it could even be a mutual fund, actually the math works the same, your total return will be the yield you bought in at. But as rates move up higher, in fact, you're rebooking higher yields, you'll probably do a little bit better. And once you hit duration, you're doing even better. So rising rates are a good thing for our clients. It's all about time horizon, though. They have to have the patience to live through that short-term pain. So it's a two-part question
0: now. Have the diversification attributes of fixed income changed over the last 10 years and do you expect the benefits of fixed income to hold going forward? And then following on from that, how should long-term investors look at
1: fixed income? So, great question. I mentioned briefly in my first comments that there have been some periods where those correlations haven't held. But in fact, if I go back to 2008, the correlations have held, and the correlation of of uh, high-quality portfolio—let's use the Barclays Aggregate Index—is somewhere around negative 0.3. To so I would say that's a pretty strong indication that it works this year we 've had periods where both the correlations have been broken and where they've worked. You can break those down into the two separate drivers when the correlations have been broken, in fact, everything's selling off and we saw a little bit of that uh, early in October of this year and we saw some earlier periods this year, what you 've really seen is fear that rising rates are going to put a break on the equity markets, and all of a sudden equity companies won't be able to sustain financing at higher costs. That's certainly one of the messages the markets are telling us. In fact, we don't think we're at those levels. The level that we think we're paying really for financing for corporations comes in is somewhere in that five and a quarter range. Let's say you put a spread of 125 basis points. That's a 4% tenure. So a three, three and a quarter percent tenure, we don't really think is the real pain point. Yeah, maybe there's some rotational trade where people say, I don't need to own equities for return anymore. I can own bonds now that they're yielding slightly more than 3%. But in general, we would say those sell-offs, which are driven by higher rates, we have higher rates, why? Because we have growth in the economy and rising inflation, not a bad thing necessarily for corporations. Equities sell-off, probably a buying opportunity. The other times during this year where we've seen the correlations work exactly like we've historically seen them have been times when, in fact, the market's been concerned about growth. When market's concerned about growth, obviously equities sell off, and that's when bonds rally. As we move through the normalization process, I expect that traditional relationship to improve itself. Nonetheless, a rising rate environment, while you want to own your core, there are some pain points. The first thing I tell people is duration. Think about your time horizon. Ignore the short-term pain. Second thing I tell people is there are ways to mitigate some of the risks of rising rates and to reduce The volatility that this rate environment is giving to their portfolio. That could be the use of an unconstrained or absolute return bond fund, one where the manager is seeking to deliver positive returns in all market environments. Obviously not correlated to rates, helps mitigate your risk. Second could be having some inflation protection in your portfolio. Typically the beta of inflation to rates is about 50%, so you have rising rates. Part of that's caused by rising inflation. If you have an inflation hedge, that's going to help offset some of the risk to your core. And the third way to do it is by adding some sort of ultra-short element to your portfolio. Some part of your portfolio is taking advantage of the Fed raising rates. They tend to have low volatility, and they can create a cushion in your portfolio. And the third thing I tell people to do is they probably should add some element where they can actually uh, take a little bit more risk and get paid for it. And that would be something like U.S. high yield, which even though spreads are near their tights, defaults are moving lower. We're moving into an environment where defaults are going down. Some predictions are closer to zero for next year. Sure, spreads are tight, but you're more than compensated by that risk of default, and the economy is still growing. We like the carry you can get from high yield. So a diversified portfolio that owns a core, something to reduce your portfolio risks. We call it the core complement. And then something to add a little bit more yield. We call it your extended sectors. A diversified portfolio like that is really what we're telling our clients to think about.
0: So you touched on inflation. We've had inflation in the Fed's balance sheet since 2009. And overall, asset prices have also inflated significantly, especially in equities. What do you think will happen as the Fed reduces its balance sheet? Do you expect the opposite to happen? That is, will there be a commensurate deflation in asset prices?
1: So that's a great question. And we think we're using the words inflation to mean two different things, right? One is the cost of goods, inflation. One is the price of of risk assets, if you will. So no question, you can imagine that if QE was positive for risk assets, QT should be the opposite. I think there's a lot of questions about some of that. I do think it's one of the things adding to volatility as we've come into the fall of 2018, concern about the Fed winding down its balance sheet, lots of questions about whether or not it's flow that's more important than stock, because the balance sheet is still pretty big, and we frankly don't really think the Fed's going to go that far. If we looked at the general rate of increase of the balance sheet, ignoring QE and everything that started in 2009, you know, we'd probably be at a level at three and a three. Three to three and a half trillion anyways so how much will the fed carve off hard to know rest of the world what they might be slowing their purchasing they're not coming anywhere close to winding down their balance sheet so more stock everywhere that has absorbed some of what's going on as we see real rates move up because most of what we've seen so far has been an increase in inflation driving rates higher now real rates are catching up yeah i think you'll see more volatility you'll see a little bit more impact on the markets but right now, we're seeing economic growth, and that is actually a justification for higher asset prices. So certainly on the equity side, I think there's a little bit more room to grunt, even if we have some of these corrections, which are normal. On the fixed income side, yes, you'll see some weakness um, in you know, core rates. Uh, rates move up, so the prices obviously, you know, prices up, I mean, rates up, prices down, typical fixed income number. Probably a little pressure on those sectors that don't have very much spread in them. But the credit spread markets still offer an attractive way to diversify your portfolio in the near term. Obviously, we're looking further out, maybe a coming recession. Lots of market participants are saying 2020. I think our expectation is the Fed at the rate they're going can engineer a soft landing. So that probably means rates don't have a lot farther to go. But it also means that the equity market doesn't have to experience a major sell-off. We can sort of just glide into the next part of the cycle.
0: So investors have been pouring trillions into passive indexed funds and ETFs. Can you talk about the problems with a passive approach to fixed income investing? Why shouldn't investors use Bloomberg Barclays U.S. aggregate index as a proxy for overall bond market and as a core holding?
1: Well, so I think that's a, there's a lot of nuance to that question. And there's a lot of great things about the Bloomberg. Uh, Barclays, um, U.S. Aggregate Index, uh, first of all, is that it does experience and has shown that negative correlation equities over time, and it does it with very low volatility. Those are really good benchmarks for your portfolio. So I wouldn't want to throw those benchmarks out. But passive, um, in general, is an issue in the fixed income markets for a couple of reasons. The first reason, of course, is that there's no such thing. You cannot replicate an index even if you tried, right? Not all bonds are available. You have to be able to go out and pick a smaller basket. So there's an element of active even in passive. But when you think about the composition of a fixed income index versus the composition of an equity index, you think about an equity index, the value of the index goes up. Individual equities have gone up in value. Now, one of two things has happened. Either their P is expanded or their earnings have expanded or both. Uh, both of those are probably okay things. You know, there's a level at which the P is probably too high, but those are both good things. The way you become a bigger and bigger part of a fixed income index is by issuing more debt. So our indices are, some people use the term market cap weighted. It's not exactly accurate, but they are weighted to the biggest debtors. So right there, when you're buying an index, you are buying issuers that have a lot of debt. There have been times when this is really an issue. So we can go back and look at the emerging market index several years ago, 1.7% Venezuela. It was only two issuers and they were both rated in the triple C category. Do you want to own that in your portfolio? Maybe not. If I look at the Muni bond index today, the biggest issuers, the biggest states are California and New York. Well, as a result of tax reform today, bonds in California and New York trade way through the market. Their yields are much lower than national rates because the high taxpayers in those states really are demanding their bonds. Well, if you don't live in New York and California, do you want to own a portfolio, overweight, bonds that aren't yielding very much? Probably not, right? So you can see some basic issues there. The issue in general we have with the Barclays Aggregate Index today is the fact that it is composed mainly of three things. U.S. Treasuries, U.S. Agency Pass-Through Mortgages. So those are, you know, uh, your investor, your your homeowner has a 30-year amortizing home loan Right, They make a payment every month to their bank. It gets passed through to the bondholder, me as an investor. The problem with those bonds is, of course, if rates go up, the homeowner says, well, I have a juicy, low interest rate mortgage. I'm going to hold on as long as possible. So the duration tends to extend. If rates go down, of course, the homeowner rushes their bank and refinances, and I, as an investor, get my money back at par. So rates go down, and the value of my bond doesn't go up like it should. Uh, there's a couple other issues we'll come back. And the third element is corporate bonds, investment rate corporate bonds. Now, what have investment rate corporate issuers done in the last few years? Exactly what they should have done. They've lengthened their debt and locked in low cost financing. So the duration of the corporate bond part of the index has moved out to about seven and a quarter. And what you're owning now is an index that's gone from about 20 years ago with a duration of four and a half to an index of six. And most of that duration, not all of it, comes from credit um, duration, so with spread duration when you think about the corporate bond market. Now, some of it has come because as rates have moved up, homeowners are holding on to their mortgages. So first of all, let's take the corporate sector out. You now have about 50% more triple B's in the index than you had, so that's a shift. You have higher duration because of the corporate sector. Then let's look at treasuries and agencies. What are the two things the Fed owns? Treasuries. And agencies. And what do they own in the agencies market? Agency pass-throughs. So in a weird quirk of index construction, the treasuries the Fed owns aren't in the ag because they weren't considered investable. Now, the Fed's letting some of those roll off their balance sheets, so the replacement securities are going to go back in the ag. And by the way, we are entering into increased deficits, going to get funded with treasuries. So the percentage of treasuries in the ag, the outstanding amount of treasuries will go up become more heavily treasuries. When we think about the mortgage market, what does the Fed own? Of course, they own those. Now, in the weird quirk is my point is those actually are still in the ag, so even though they may not be investable, but nonetheless, the Fed is letting some of those wind down. We'll have to find replacement buyers. When we think about supply and demand factors, that suggests there's more supply coming and perhaps the demand may not be there. So maybe some pressures. What's great about the U.S. bond market is that about 50% of the investment-grade market in the U.S. is not in the aggregate index. There are lots of Treasury securities that aren't in the index. You think about STRIPS. There are agency-guaranteed mortgages that aren't in the index, Commercial uh, CMOs, collateralized mortgage obligations, uh, things like planned amortization class bonds. We have more certainty on your duration. Things like multifamily loans also backed by agencies, so like a Fannie Mae dust bond, D-U-S, none of those securities are in the index. So an active investor in uh, a core portfolio can actually choose to own securities that we think will outperform the securities that are in the ag. Passive, uh, certainly there's some certainty with regard to the index, but if you look back historically over any rolling three-year period, and you're in a passive aggregate index uh, ETF, your return has been the index less fees. So if we think the index will underperform, you're going to have the underperforming index less fees. We think that an active manager can find much more attractive ways to put your core money to work, still get that low volatility, still get that negative correlation to equities, but outperform as rates rise. So earlier on,
0: you briefly touched on muni bonds. Yes. Um, can you talk about the municipal bond market and where you see risks and opportunities? And then a follow-on from that, what effects will states with financial troubles have on the muni bond markets, or will problems be
1: contained? So that's a good question. It's more the systemic versus, versus idiosyncratic risk issue. Uh, first thing, let's talk about what's going on in the muni market. From a fundamental standpoint, in fact, state and local government balance sheets are pretty stable right now. The economic uh, growth in this country and the stabilization of the economy has been great for state and local governments. And so, in general, when we look in the short run, balance sheets look better. Now, there's certainly some long term looming issues. We've been talking about them for some time, and they really center around unfunded pension liabilities and unfunded what's called OPEB, which is OPEB stands for Other Post Employment Benefits, pretty much retiree health care in general. There are some states where that is severely underfunded. Illinois is the poster child. I think most of us know that, uh, followed by New Jersey. um, But a couple of other states people may be less aware of, for instance, are Connecticut or Kentucky. Now, Illinois is by far the the riskiest. It's it's at a level where our analysis suggests that there probably is no good solution for them. It's not going to mean that we're going to have defaults in the near term. In fact, most of these programs are probably solvent for the next 20 years. But it is a looming issue, and over time, will crowd out all other ways that the state of Illinois can, can meet their funding needs. So we do have some long-term concerns, particularly because there's not a good legal solution. Because if you look at pensions, what's been pretty much guaranteed to retirees has been guaranteed to retirees, guaranteed in many cases, not contractually, but constitutionally, very hard for states to get out of some of these. So there are some states we're concerned about. But even in those states where you're concerned, you have to recognize that there are issuers that aren't impacted by the state at all. You think at private universities. Uh, You think in a state like New Jersey, Princeton. Princeton has no, you know, if if it sells off, it's only because it got caught up in the fray of, oh, it's in New Jersey. Great buying opportunity. We saw this when Detroit got into financial trouble, that some of the AAA communities in Michigan traded off because Detroit was trading off. Guess what? Great buying opportunity. We still think there's a really good selection of opportunities out there, but the looming issue for some states is this pension issue. Now, tax reform has created an environment where, in high-tax states in particular, munis are extremely attractive. Munis are attractive versus, uh, really, in general, uh, corporate bonds and treasury bonds. But if you live in New Jersey or New York or Connecticut or – Connecticut's moving up – but California and New York are really the poster children, you're paying up to buy muni bonds. One other impact of tax reform, though, that people may not be paying attention to is the fact that, as we know, corporate tax rates went down. People always talk about, well, property and casualty companies buy muni bonds. And it's true we've seen demand slow there. We haven't really seen selling yet. What people don't focus on, however, is that banks are among the biggest broker-dealers in the market. And one of the impacts of tax reform on the muni market has been that we continue to see liquidity being reduced because now banks are less incented to own inventory. They already had pretty low incentive to own inventory. Well, that's gone down now that the after-tax benefit of holding inventory has also gone down.
0: Okay, Great. So final question, taking the long view. Uh, what kinds of attributes or characteristics should fixed income portfolios have to be well-positioned for the future?
1: Well, as I mentioned, even though bonds with duration, high-quality bonds with duration, seem like that you would not want to own them in a rising rate environment, It's actually your friend as long as you can live through the short-term pain. So the first attribute, I would say, is you need to own duration because you need to have that offset to equities. If you don't have duration, you don't get that. It's great. Ten-year bond is rallying. Well, if you have only short-term paper, you're not going to benefit from that. So you need to own that, but you need to think about the duration of your core in relation to your own time frame. If your time horizon is two to three years, obviously, you shouldn't go past two to three years on your core. But you need to think about, as I mentioned earlier, a way to bring down volatility in your portfolio. I talked about some ways to do that. And you also need to recognize that you probably want a little bit of yield in your portfolio. Um, So we like high yield today, but we should always remember you have to monitor your portfolio. Market conditions change. There may be times when you want to readjust. And so there's no perfect mix for everybody. Everybody's mix is going to be different depending on what both their short and long-term goals are. If you have a client that has a lot of money and all they want to do is not worry about losing any of it, they can own more of those, what we call core corpor- complement, those things that reduce portfolio risk and take some of the higher octane risk and some of the duration risk out of their portfolio. So every client will have a different mix. But I think diversification, diversification to your equities and diversification within your fixed income both remain keys.
0: It's been a very engaging discussion, Priscilla. Thank you very much. And thanks to everyone for listening.
1: Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent
0: professional should be sought.